I'd like to begin tonight by inviting any questions that you might have, any comments, any questions about uh, the teachings, anything about uh, something that you're noticing in your practice, notice tonight in your practice, or noticing in your life practice. And I'd like you to feel free to speak into the silence, knowing that it is likely that your question or a topic that you may want me to cover, that your question or topic will likely be of some benefit to someone else, so don't be bashful. Please confess your delusions if it's helpful. Uh, any comments, questions, please. Sally, right there. There's a microphone. Um, I was very comforted when I, when I arrived here and in your opening statements, you said something about coming into the safety of the present, because I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. And I know because of all that's been going on in the world, I felt so much unsafe. I felt very unsafe. So to think of just the present itself as being a place of safety is my pleasure. I'm not sure I really, I think that it's, there's something self-evident about it when we are aware of the, the simple present, you know, in a context like this. This is what, what's unique about Sangha or association with truth is there is a both an explicit and implicit commitment to be together for the purpose of awakening and in that to create conditions of non-harming and to, uh, to incline our mind toward uh, simplicity, toward generosity, you know, and, and non-harming. And so that does create some safety. And then there's the more, the more ultimate kind of safety that can be felt internally just by locating yourself in the present moment almost in any circumstance. And I don't mean there's always outer safety because many people experience periods of outer safety, but there is something about accompanying whatever you're experiencing with attention that increases, almost gives a felt sense of increasing your safety in real time. Because you have the, with awareness, you have one, a, a caring that comes naturally, two, an intelligence, a more capacity to know how to deal with something in real time. And there's something stilling and quieting about being present. And stilling and quieting often gives us some feeling of safety. So, you know, you can, like I said, it's self-evident, you can recognize it or check it out in your own experience. Is the present a place of safety? Anyone else? Thanks for mentioning that, Sally. Karen? Sure, there's a question in here. 
So just being present doesn't seem to, to address the helplessness that we sometimes feel. I have about a 45-minute Dharma talk. <laughs> well, but, you know, just the first thing that where the Dharma, the Dharma of the present moment can aid us with the experience of helplessness is to recognize that helplessness is a mood. It's, a, it's an emotion. And as an emotion, it's a changing condition. And when you meet it with with the Dharma, with, with attention, with kindness, and you, instead of relating from the feeling of helplessness, which is very easy to do when we're, when we're spun out, instead of relating from the feeling of helplessness, we relate to the feeling of helplessness with, with awareness, with some understanding, and, and then helplessness becomes a workable feeling, it, and it, it, doesn't have, it, it can't last very long. It's only when we don't pay attention to whatever we're feeling in real time that whatever feeling we're having becomes um, globalized, more monolithic, more defining of our experience rather than the momentary experience that it actually is. So I would just use whatever feeling that you are having as your, as your let it call you to real time and, oh, this is helplessness. So the mind will usually want to solve helplessness and go out. And the Dharma tells us to, first things first, is attend to the reality of helplessness. This is what's presenting itself. The, the Buddha's admonishment or recommendation, be aware of each arising experience. And that isn't just what's generally happening in the world, it means each arising experience, internally and externally. Internally, what's the arising experience right now? Once you know what that is, again, it's workable. It's almost a source of safety. Oh, helplessness. I mean, it's easy to talk about. It's another feeling. Of course, we have certain feelings that are frequent visitors, but I think they are frequent visitors because we tend to get more caught up in the story of them than the actual feeling of them. So what we learn in the Dharma is instead of thinking about our feelings, we feel them. And it makes the, makes the Dharma and the present moment a source of, of peace. I mean, I could go, we could go a thousand different directions in that. I'll just give you a little moment of where I wanted to go on, that would have been more of a 45-minute conversation. I noticed the, the whole range of, of feelings of helplessness and fear and, and terror and rage and, you know, all these things. They're, it's often because I haven't really somehow... Um, I, I don't want to sound glib about this. I haven't really just opened to the first noble truth. I haven't remembered in a moment that because I was born, no matter how wonderful things get, I will have things that, are, that seem at times surreal, crazy, painful, 
frustrating, not the way I want them to, to be. And this is, this, is not, this is not going to get better. That's not going to get better. We're going to have things like that in our life if you were born. And what really exacerbates the feeling of, of all of those and the exaggeration of all the feelings that I have is, is turning my present moments into the study of the sport of trying to get it right. Seeing who's going to win. Seeing how it's going to be solved. What's going to happen? I realize that the way I've been relating to the world is almost like I do around, around my love of sports. There's a kind of intoxication and I'm getting into it and then it's feeding. When my team is winning, it's, yeah, yeah. When my team is losing, I, deflation, helplessness, hopelessness. And it's so easy to project that onto everything. And it's really, what, what it is, is the second noble truth. Craving for some pleasure. Craving for the, for the, the right answer. Craving for the person that I want. And that was what the Buddha called the cause of stress. So every time I get caught in the, in the train, uh, I'm sowing the seeds of more and more stress. I'm compounding my stress. And then, of course, when things aren't the way I want them to be, I feel kind of helpless. And I'm not, you know, I, I, it happens all the time, so I can relate. I feel, oh. And then, fortunately, once I remember the Dharma, and I notice helplessness is like this, I realize it's cessation. It falls away as a, as a momentary feeling. And I'm, oh, the world hasn't changed and I feel, I feel changed right now. I feel some relief. And then I realize, oh, I've been, because I, there was a tension that, that came to bear there, I was walking the path. I was, I was fulfilling the path of awakening. Waking up. It's not some kind of exotic thing. It's waking up to dukkha when I find it the cause of it when I, know, when I notice it, and letting go. The end of it, and realizing it, and the path. Staying aware, staying away. So the Four Noble Truths is always, it's good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. During politics, sports, relationships, everything. Everything. And again, I, I, at the risk of sounding glib, you know, it just, it's, it, just take a ride on the Four Noble Truths. Anyone else? Any other? Please. Could you speak to how uh, relating to our emotions as opposed to from them, as you're saying here, with feelings of helplessness or not feeling safe, how you see that actually as, in addition to helping us find relief and avoid our own suffering, does that help us actually respond better to what is happening in the world? To be more vigilant, to be better able to protect those who are in need, etc. I think you answered your own question. Absolutely. If I'm completely at the effect of my feelings, usually when, if I'm relating from my feelings, I'm often, I'm often in a really reactive state, and, and reactive states tend to generate a lot of discursive thinking and a lot of feeling of disembodiment. And so then I try to solve the 
the world's problems from my, from my thinking mind, and it becomes really all about me in the world, instead of being remembering that I'm part of this connection and that, and that it seems to be from the place of quiet, from the place of stillness, from the place of presence, that I both have vitality, I have clarity, I have care. All of it flows just with so much more efficiency. So it, I think you answered your own question. I, that was a lot of wisdom in your question. You feel your, your muscles contract and, and yeah. Yeah, and I sort of experience it more as, as I, I feel it like emerges from the muscle before I'm aware of the emotion. And I often struggle with whether to embrace that because it's, such a, it's a very unpleasant sort of sensation that comes. And I feel it when it starts to arrive. And so to embrace it will mean that I'll have like a minute or two where I can actually feel muscles clenching and feel very tight. And eventually it sort of works itself out. Or do I sort of try to like note it right away and then uh, be like, oh, I see it coming and sort of like almost sort of like head it off at the pass, which I also experience that I can do. And it's sort of like, I guess it's one of, it's, there's sort of a meta question here somewhere of like when you see that an emotion is starting or that a sensation or a feeling is starting, you sort of have some sense of where it's going to lead to want to embrace it and let that sort of play its course or do you try to observe it? And I, think that, I think both answers are exactly the same. You notice it and you let it take its course. And you, and I guess the only thing that I would watch out for, mostly it's just to feel whatever, see sometimes we'll feel things physically, sometimes we'll notice certain things in our mind and somehow the combination of some, something you might be getting upset about and the felt sense of it, it's whatever it is, whatever part of that is known. That's dharma, that's the truth, that's nature unfolding. There, in some ways there's nothing to do about that or undo other than to, to try to, to accept that, be with it, to recognize it as a, chain, as a condition that comes uninvited, so in that way it's selfless. And not to create a big ego trip about trying to, I'm not saying you are, but one, to create an, an ego thing around manipulating it or making something happen or getting it at the right spot and not turning it into a project of not having a feeling, the not having the feeling project. If the feeling's there, embrace it. That's, that's nature. The bigger issue is when it comes if there's some way that, that um, you may be embellishing it, feeding it. That part, if there's some kind of greed in the mind for more, or if there's, or it's being fed by some aversion. So you want to be both aware of the feeling and notice any reaction to it. And those are, those are different moments of noticing, but you can, in some ways, 
put a rib, you know, put a little space around the whole thing and notice the whole sequence of what happens. How does that unfold? And to be equally open to the various reactions that you might have. And I think you st when you started your question, I think you hit on maybe the most important element of it when you notice it is unpleasant. Just notice that unpleasantness. See if you can be more, this is where Dharma can be very liberating, be more accommodating of unpleasant. But, un, but notice the difference between unpleasant and I don't like it. They are not the same. Unpleasant is just unpleasant. I don't like it is often the reaction to unpleasant that exacerbates it, that, that makes it worse. So you said that you notice the unpleasantness, embrace the unpleasantness of it. Because once you embrace it, it doesn't go down that road of, I hate you, I have to do something about you, I have to get to the bottom of why this is here. Instead, you can experience how without grasping, without condemning it, it self-liberates. It just starts, it loses its, loses its grip. Anything that you can actually feel in that intimate way, without an agenda. Helplessness, clenched jaw. I, I just want to add one more thing. If you find that you are, have a chronic reaction of a lot of aversion to what you're experiencing, then sometimes it's useful to bring in another skillful mean, means to balance the way that you approach it. So you might want to bring some loving kindness, some kind of gesture of kindness, some words of kindness, something that's, that at least softens the attention. Remember, we're not trying to soften the experience, we're trying to soften the attention so we're less reactive. Please, last one. No, not the last one. Maybe the last one. Thanks for hanging in there on a Q&A night. Some, some people like Dharma talks and we've been, this is long overdue, please. The Brahma Viharas? Yeah. Um, and I used to tell this that what came to me really a warm heart. Where there was. Um, you know, I'm having a hard time. The, the distance from the mic is. Oh, is this better? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I've been watching a lot of the Brahma Viharas lately, and I'm trying to understand because before I could tell a difference between a warm heart, I could, I could feel kindness. And then I could sense sadness, but now it just and obviously joy too. I now it just feels like it's all the same feeling. What's the last part? It it all feels like the same feeling. Same right? feeling. In the heart, and it, it, I'm just trying to understand what this is. The uh, kindness and happiness feels the same as sadness to me in the heart. Mm. And I'm wondering if this is just compassion or. I'm just trying to get some understanding of no. what this actually really works. Thank you. Question about the Brahma Viharas and the difference between the, the felt sense of these different qualities of uh, happiness, sad. But just for those who don't know what the Brahma Viharas are, just to back up a little, the Brahma Viharas are, are called, the, they're called the heavenly Brahma, which is heavenly abode, they're, or the uh, 
uh, immeasurable qualities of the heart or the natural, the qualities that are the expressions of an awakened heart. And, and they're qualities that are, are unconditional. We all have them. The quality of love or goodwill, friendliness, that's love, loving kindness. And when loving kindness meets painful situations, people, etc., it expresses itself as compassion. The heart quivers and there's a, there's a joining in love with, with difficulties, with someone's or the world's difficulties. When, it, when that love meets, uh, meets good fortune or joy, it, it, it experience, it's experienced as resonant, as sympathetic or altruistic joy. You feel with another person's joy. And when, when that, that feeling of love becomes very unbound, universal, when it can include uh, all beings, when loving kindness becomes quite um, without any limits at all, it also expresses itself as this capacity to hold all the joys and all the sorrows in your heart and remain open and balanced. So it's a, it expresses itself as equanimity. That's the fourth heavenly abode. So each person, you know, each person will feel that quality of good, of friendliness, of goodwill, feel that quality of compassion differently. Sometimes there's a, uh, I, I think you were saying you feel it in the same place in your body, is that? No, the, the, it used to feel different if I was feeling more warm versus more sadness. Yes. And now it just all feels the same. Now is it lightness, is it the same warm or is it or is it the same is it warm now or is it just I think it's, it feels mostly warm, yeah, it's hard to differentiate. But you do you can still discern the difference between happy and I love it, but I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> yeah, I would just keep studying it and just feel that feel the way the articulation of your heart. It's it's a it's an amazing thing that this phys- physical corollary to this this uh, this state of of caring. It's amazing how that happens. But it's not not everybody feels that feeling the same way. Something tells you that there's a difference between love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So I'd, I'd be curious how you know the difference. <laughs> well, I guess I'd also want to know why you want to figure it out. Yes. Yes. No, I appreciate the question. And yeah, I, I think that's such a personal discovery, though. But we can talk more after. Gladly. We have time for one more topic, question. Anyone?
please. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think that the, uh, I don't think I can really answer that other than what comes to mind about, about everything is that, is that each person has to, has to organize their action around their own, um, their own feelings, their own intentions. And very central in the Buddha's teaching around action is that the fruit of the action depends on the, the motivation behind it, the intention behind it, the fruit of any action. And so the, the most important thing right now is to really clarify the intention. Because not just to fly off on I need to be doing something, but to really, to really listen, to do a little more listening, and, and maybe talking to other people about what they're doing. We just had a, a group here for the second meeting of, the, of the, some kind of social, social action committee. And there's a, there's a big conversation going on in the Sangha in general. Uh, one, to, to be more local or to be much more a voice of some kind of activism, some kind of uh, response to the, the big things in the world, or to, to attend to the local needs of the community. And we don't even know among ourselves what to do. And then there is, just as a Sangha in general, there are different models in this world. There ha- there have been monasteries that were, that were just considered places of refuge where they just embodied the po- potential for living in harmony and peace, examples of peace in a world that could, be, could, could feel unsafe or, not, or where people are not so, so um, sensitive to harm, you know, harming and non-harming. So that's one thing. Th- thing you can do is really resolve to, to create in your inner and in your circle uh, safe places of refuge. And then the other model is that these days you, you need, to be, need to be active. And so we may become, this sangha may become an activist sangha. I'm not sure. It really depends on what you want. We may, con- and hopefully will continue every week to be a place of sanity and refuge and hopefully that, that you just by being together in the immediacy you know it's so interesting for me just the last thing I'll say I've been uh, you know I hear every day about the world and you know and I'm reading and I'm reacting and everybody's reacting and that the last three last this last weekend I was in Arizona you know Arizona just whatever your associations with Arizona 
On the Friday evening, I was with 150 people meditating. Quiet. Opening their heart, doing what we do every Tuesday. Whole weekend retreat with a lot of people. And they're all going into their communities. There's so many people doing beautiful things. Practicing non-harming. It's so easy to forget. That's not, there's, there's such a, each thing that we do is a ripple in this world. It's already a form of social action. And then the weekend before I was in Texas with the same, same configuration of a lot of people on a Friday night and then a lot of people on the weekend and they're all going out there and, and infiltrating the world with, with peace. And, or just being peace. And don't underestimate the power of, of your little piece of peace. I, I wish I had, there was, yeah, we need to put all the pieces together. <laughs> One big piece. Anyway, thanks for the question. I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, th thank you all for your questions and your willingness to speak into the silence and We'll try to do this every month or so, and then, you know, or as much as it feels like it's helpful, and otherwise we'll do Dharma talks. And I hope to see you all at the Happiness Hour next week, at the Book Exchange, and uh, also to celebrate the Hallmark holiday. <laughs> Before you leave, let us consider, as we do every week when I remember, to, uh, to gather together in our hearts and our minds uh, any of the fruits, any of the goodness, any of the blessings, any of the merit, any benefits that have arisen from our being together and any of the goodness or benefits that have arisen from our life and use this time to offer to all beings everywhere to radiate our good wishes, our love, our compassion, our joy and our equanimity to all beings everywhere without exception. Carried with an, an extra blessing, a deep wish that all beings in all circumstances can, I mean, that means all beings, no one excluded. Can all beings have happiness and peace? And notice who you leave out of your wish for happiness and peace, and that's the limit of your loving kindness. Deep wish that all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And notice if there are any limitations to that wish. The deep wish that all beings recognize the natural happiness, the sacred happiness of simply being conscious and awake here and now. That unconditional availability of wakefulness and peace that is your natural state. And a deep wish that all beings can grow in serenity equanimity, able to deal with the joys and the sorrows with less reactivity. May our practice today and every day be, be a benefit. May all beings be liberated.
including ourselves. Thanks for the generosity of your presence. Thanks for the generosity of support. And hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.